other people can get the mind into deep jhana with still heal the world outside. So that's not one of the whether or not your ears go silent when you're practicing is not a measure of whether you've actually gotten into right concentration or not. The factors that are re- relevant to right to concentration are the ones that are discussed in the texts. Um, the first passage, Sister Damadina, she's being asked questions by her former husband, and she asks the questions about concentration. Singleness of mind is concentration. The four establishing of mindfulness are its themes. And concentration and mindfulness go together. The four right exertions are its requisites, in other words, the exertion to develop your, um, basically motivate yourself to get rid of, or to prevent unskillful qualities from arising, to get rid of unskillful qualities that have arisen, to develop skillful qualities and to maintain skillful qualities that have arisen. That is a requisite for concentration. We're not simply here to watch concentration come and go and say, oh yes, isn't it inconstant, and kind of leave it. It's something, it's part of the path, it's meant to be developed. You work at it. And as you cultivate, develop, and pursue these dharmas, in other words, singleness of mind, the four establishments of mindfulness, and the right exertions, that's the development of concentration. One of the important passages, one of the important words in this definition here is singleness of mind. I've put it in Pali there, egakata. And this relates to passage five. Because the word eka means one. Aga has, is, the, is the question, is the questionable term in there. And ta is the ending of a word that turns an adjective into a noun. So ega, ega ga would be a, an adjective. Then ega kata would be single, ega ga-ness. Um, sometimes this is translated as one-pointedness, translating aga as point. The thing is that in the Pali Canon, First, just going to the definition of the term, angan does not necessarily mean point. It can mean the summit of something. It can also mean the ridge of a roof. It can mean the tip, like the tip of your tongue. In fact, there's a great passage where they talk about how monks in the future will be searching out the aga of flavors, the utmost flavor, with that aga of their tongue. Um, thing is, the word aga can also mean gathering place or meeting place. Like the upasadanga is the gathering hall where monks get together for their abhosita practice. The padanga is where they get together to have, they gather together to have their meals. And one of the underlying images that you see throughout the canon about the, describing concentration practice is it is a dwelling. It's a place where you stay. You sort of move in for protection. And it appears that that's, that's the meaning of aga that's used here. So you have, the mind is gathered into one. This is confirmed by the sort of everyday usage of the term. If you look at passage 5, the word is talking about how you should listen to the Dharma. First he says, one reason you can, be, you can be listening to the true Dharma and not get anywhere, because you're, you've got five of these, any one of these five qualities. You hold the talk in contempt, you hold the speaker in contempt, you hold yourself in contempt. In other words, the speaker, the speaker, I don't trust the speaker at all, doesn't know what he or she is talking about. Or the talk, talk is a lousy talk. You hold yourself in contempt, in other words, oh, he's talking about this amazing dharma that I will never get to. It's getting in the way. And then you listen to the mind, dharma with a scattered mind, a mind that is not gathered into singleness. And then you attend inappropriately. Now, when the Buddha talks about attention, it's interesting. There's never the word bare attention, as I said last night, never appears in the Pali Canon. He talks about appropriate attention or inappropriate attention. Inappropriate attention is any kind of way of 
paying attention to things or questions that will not lead you to the end of suffering. Whereas appropriate attention is we're thinking about things and framing the issues in terms that will lead to the end of suffering. So in other words, you're not asking the right questions of yourself. Okay, if you listen to these, if you have any of these five qualities, you're not going to get anywhere listening to the Dharma talk. Or if you have the five opposite, you don't hold the talk in contempt, you don't hold the speaker in contempt, you don't hold yourself in contempt. You listen to the Dharma with an unscattered mind, a mind gathered into one, and you attend appropriately. Now, sometimes your one pointedness being defined to the extent that you can't, your mind is such a single point that you can't sense your body, you can't think, you can't hear anything outside. But here he's actually talking about you're listening to somebody giving a talk, you're thinking about the talk as you're going along, and your mind is still gathered into one. So there's this oneness to the mind. All the activities of the mind are gathered around one topic. It doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be reduced to one point. Particularly when you get when you start seeing the, the Buddha's images for the mind in the state of jhana. He keeps talking about this full body awareness. You're aware you know, the pleasure fills the whole body, you're aware of the whole body. That's not one point. It's a whole body awareness that we're getting after here. Where there's there may be one center, but the range of your awareness fills the whole body. The whole body is the foundation for your concentration. So let's look at passage two for a minute. This is the definition of right mindfulness. Okay, you remain focused on the body in and of itself, ardent, alert, and mindful, subduing greed and distress with reference to the world. Okay, this is a description of what you're doing when you're trying to get the mind concentrated. You focus on one topic in and of itself, like the breath. You subdue greed and distress. I've got a real problem with spoonerisms. Um, so you subdue greed and distress with reference to the world. And you are ardent, alert, and mindful. Now remember, mindfulness does not mean just being aware or being receptive or being non-judgmental. It means remembering something. You're remembering, in this case, to keep the mind with the breath. You're also remembering what, what the mind is not gathered to the, getting to the breath. Recognize that as a state of mind you do not want to develop. And try to figure out, okay, what can I do, what can I change to get the mind to be more centered on the breath? What have I done in the past? So then you apply that. Then you're alert to what's actually going on. And particularly you're alert to what you're doing, the results that you're getting. Alertness here doesn't mean just kind of being alert to the fact that there's a light there or there's you know, you know, this traffic noise outside. You're alert to, what am I doing right now? And what are the results I'm getting? That's where your focus is in the present moment. And then finally, you're ardent. If you see you're doing something unskillful, you try your best to, you know, in other words, engage in the right effort, which is to get rid of the unskillful quality, make sure it doesn't come back, and try to, de to develop a skillful quality in its place. Now, you notice there are four frames of reference here. There's the body in and of itself, feelings, mind, mental qualities in and of themselves. And as we mentioned last night, when you're focused on one, it's hard not to have the others involved. Like you're focused on the breath, well, there's going to be a feeling, either of ease or dis-ease, that's associated with the breath. You're also going to be noticing, what is my mind state right now? Is it centered on the breath, or is it beginning to wander around? And when you're getting the mind to concentration, these are the three things you have to bring together. Body, feeling, you're trying to create a feeling of ease in the feeling of the body, and your awareness stays with the body, fills the body. So you're trying to get all three of those together. And then the list of mental qualities is basically the Buddha's list of things to remind yourself. If things are not going well, what can you bring to bear on the concentration so you can make it better? When it is going well, what can you bring to bear to make sure that it stays? 
So all four frames of reference are involved as you're getting the mind into concentration. Any questions on that point? Yes. Yeah, well, it's, it, it's it's kind of like think, thinking of the mind as a committee. When we're talking about the state of the mind, it's like the whole committee has decided, yes, we're going to go down to Starbucks and buy, get some coffee in it. <laughs> Mental qualities are members of the committee saying, no, um, you know, Starbucks suppresses its workers, maybe we shouldn't go there, and then there's a back and forth in it. <laughs> so it's the individual qualities that come come together, and, and they create, they'll either create a mind state, or the mind state is kind of scattered until things have settled down. Because the list of mental qualities are primarily either they're negative or they're positive. And so if you learn how to recognize, okay, there's something wrong with my mind, go back and look, what are the individual qualities that might be making it, making it, you know, continuing to make it unskillful. Once it becomes skillful, okay, how do I recognize what to maintain and what to let go so I can stay here? So that, I think, is the relationship among those two, between those two different frames of reference. But is it mentioned that the mind is mentioned separate from mental qualities because there's an, an energy or a, or a frequency that the mind itself can hold? Well, you just ask, what is my mind state right now as a whole? And the Buddha has a whole long list of possible mind states. Is it greed or is it lack of greed? Aversion, lack of aversion. Delusion, lack of delusion. Is it, you know, is it scattered or is it sleepy? And the kinds of questions you ask yourself as you're getting the mind into concentration. You say, if it's sleepy, ah, what is sleepy? Where does the sleepiness come from? Well, let's go look at either the breath, or you go look at you know, where where is the drowsiness coming from, and then you remember, ah, the Buddha had some teachings on how to deal with drowsiness. You remember those? See if you're going to apply them, because it's got you. It's almost like a checklist. What are the possible things that I that could be going wrong right now? And in addition to the Buddhist checklist, you know, over time with your own practice of concentration, you will develop your own checklist. Things that work, things that don't work. So that's what that frame of reference is for. And these are four areas that you will bring to bear. The first three are basically what you're trying to get together, body, feelings, and mind. And then Ultimately, when you get into discernment practice, and you're trying to separate those, but first you got to bring them together so they're right there, present together. And then the the fourth frame of reference is kind of your checklist for when things are going right. How do I make sure they go continue or get better? And if things are not going right, okay, what am I holding on to that I should be letting go? Yes. So, um, so doing greed and distress with reference to the world. What do you mean by subduing? Uh, yes, that doesn't mean just push it out. For the time being, let's push it out. Pardon? Push it out for the time being. We're doing concentration practice right now, okay? <laughs> and that means these things have no business at all in your mind state right now. The, the Pali word vinaya actually relates to vinaya, which is the the, the, the word for discipline. You're disciplining these things, training the mind, getting them out. So you say, okay, I have no business thinking about politics right now. Out. <laughs> I'm not here for that. I'm here to get the mind still. 
And sometimes there will be a certain kind of reasoning. You know, if there's some, some issue in your family or some issue at work, say, look, this is not the time. Or if you know, lust comes up, anger comes up, this is not the time for that right now, push it out. And again, sometimes you can't just push it out, sometimes you have to analyze it a little bit more, talk to yourself why this is really, this is really not where I want to go right now. You know, think of how many lifetimes you've been thinking about issues like this and just keep spinning your, spinning your wheels. Maybe it's time I just, just put it aside, get the mind into concentration. As John Lee makes the point that when you're doing concentration, you're actually going against the three characteristics. Your inconstancy, stress, not-self. You're trying to make your mind state constant, trying to make it easeful, and trying to get it under your control. So you're pushing against those three characteristics. I mean, ultimately you find how far you can push. And that's how the Buddha practiced himself. He pushed against these things until they began pushing back. But he didn't just you know, give up from the very beginning and say, oh, it's, this is, you know, everything is inconstant. Because you hear too much of this, that the idea that, you know, inconstancy, stress, not self. And how can you get your mind into concentration? This is, it, goes, it goes against discernment. If you have concentration, it's got to be a sense of self who's doing the concentration. Bad, you know, bad, bad boy. You know? <laughs> Shame on you. you know? <laughs> or if you're with one object... <laughs> not holding yourself in contempt. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. But I mean, I, you I actually, well, we do that too much. But there's, I mean, there's just also too many Dharma, Dharma readings and writings where people will actually say this. I don't want to name names, but there are people out there who write these things. Or that, you know, you get your mind in one topic, ah, attachment, bad boy, you know. You shouldn't be attached. It's crazy. I mean, all the Forest of Johns make this point in their teachings that there are things you have to hold on to until the time comes to let go. And so if you say, well, I'll just let go from the very beginning, that's it. You're done. Finished. But not in the way you think you are finished. You know? You're done for. You know? <laughs> You know, John, John Fuang's example, I guess because, because you know, I was, a, I was a young American, came soon after the moon landing. He talked about you know, sending the rocket to the moon. You need the booster, you have, and, the, and the capsule has to hold on to the booster until the booster has done its job, then it lets go, and then the capsule can go further. And John, John Mahabu's example is climbing a ladder to, the, to a roof. You have to hold on to each rung. You have to hold on to the upper rung before you can let go of the lower rung. Then you can hold on to the one that's next higher. Then you let go of this. But you always have to hold on to something. Once you get to the roof, then you can let go of the ladder. And John Chaz, of course, is the one about you're coming back from the market with a banana in your hand. And someone asks you, why are you carrying the banana? You say, I'm going to eat it. How about the peel? Are you going to eat the peel too? No. Then why are you carrying the peel? And a John Shah, I like the way John Shah deals with this. He says, How are you, with what are you going to answer that person? And his first answer to that question is, you have to answer with desire. You have to want to have a good answer to be able to think of a good answer. Right? So, there is a role for desire in discernment. And then the second one is, the answer is, the time hasn't come to let go of the peel yet. 
If I, if I let go of the peel now, the banana turns into mush. So the peel has its use as I'm holding on to it. So yes, you do push these guys out, greed and distress with reference to the world. And in fact, anything that has anything to do with reference to the world outside, you say, I don't need that right now. My frame of reference is the breath in and of itself, the body in and of itself, not the body in the context of the world. Yes. Okay, just, it's, I mean, sometimes you can just do that. Say, I will just be with the parts that I've got together, and if I'm not paying attention to the stragglers, eventually they go away. Something like you know, dogs that come and ask for some food, and you know, you don't have to pay them any attention. And after all, they just go away on their own. But if they're really insistent, keep coming back. So I've got to deal with this, and remind myself why I don't need to think about that letter right now. It'll get written later. And the part of the mind that says, this is great, you've got a whole hour right here, free time. <laughs> Use your, your class. Free time to think about your letter. So you're, nope, 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 this is a waste of my time. So the first would be, okay, I think I got four of them they fade away, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, then you, work, then you work with it. Yes? In the Foundations of Mindfulness Sutta, when it discusses the contemplation of the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the words that it used, I wanted to see if you could mm-hmm. expound upon it. Um, when it talks about contracted versus distracted, mm-hmm. or exalted versus unexalted, or surpassed versus unsurpassed, um, I was wondering if you would be able to explain if those are all the same qualities. No, no. Constricted is basically the mind is sleepy. Distracted, of course, it's got too much energy, it's thinking about other things. And the word exalted is not the word, it's not the right translation. I have a lot of issues with Bhikkhu Bodhi's translations, which is why I did my own. Um, the word Mahagata means enlarged, it's bigger. So is the mind filling the body or is it not filling the body? And if it's not, okay, well, what can we do to make it fill the body? You don't just say, gee, it's not filling the body, I'll just kind of notice it until it starts filling the body on its own. That's not how it happens. Remember, when you're reading that sutta, you have to remember this is not a complete description of mindfulness practice. He sets out the whole formula for mindfulness practice, and then he answers questions only about one tiny part, which is what does it mean to, to keep focused on one of these topics in and of themselves? No discussion of ardency, no discussion of the rest of the formula. So he's warning you up front, okay, we're just talking about what does it mean to have, what are the things that you would try to keep in mind? And then the question is, you know, once you have that in mind, what do you do with your ardency in order to make it more skillful or maintain something that's skillful? So in this case, when the mind is not mahagata, which is not enlarged, what do you do to make it enlarged? And John Lee gives some really good tips on how to do that. Um, Surpassed, unsurpassed, in other words, has your mind ever been this good before or has it not been this good before? 
And if it's been better than this before, can you make it better? Can you bring it up to that level? So could you loosely use those those words, the sort of contrariness of them, to kind of create your own language in your mind mm-hmm. for what's good? Mm-hmm. No, there's, it's, it's just getting to where, where I want it to go. Because after, after the, the first three there, which are the descriptions of mind with or without passion, with or without aversion, delusion, then it goes into the questions you ask about your mind when you're trying to get into concentration. Is it, do I have too little energy, too much energy? Is the mind concentrated? Is it not? Is it expanded? Is it not? And on down the line. Yes? Okay. The Buddhist teachings on sleepiness, first one is, if you're focused, you find you're getting sleepy focused on one topic, change the topic. Now, in terms of the breath, this could be changed the way you breathe first. Deeper breathing, long in, short out, long in, short out, tends to wake you up. Um, I've also personally found that you move the spot of your focus around. In other words, I'll stay here for three breaths, and then here for three breaths, and here for three breaths, and here, and kind of chase your attention around the body that way. That might wake you up. If you find that working with the breath doesn't help, is there any other topic that you do find more you know, energizing? Sometimes death is really good when you're getting sleepy. <laughs> do I want to die when I'm sitting here nodding? <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, it's it's because you say, "Hey, I'm, I'm sitting here, drifting my drifting here, thinking out." When, when the hour end of the hour, I'm just going to go to bed, and sleep about it for you know, and you're and you're already already beginning to get sleepy. Remember, I could die before the hour is up, and gee, that would have been a wasted hour. Or you can think about the bones in your body. Where is your skull right now? Where are the neck bones? Where are the spine? Where are the arms? Where the, and give yourself something to think about. If that doesn't work, then the Buddha says you, you know, rub your limbs, pull your earlobes, get up, look at the stars, go and walk for a bit. If you have any chance you've ever memorized, run them over in your head until that wakes you up. So those are some of the things you can do. Yes? I was the readings that I didn't understand. Affluence? Affluence, yeah. Affluence. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could explain or tell me the Pali. Okay, the Pali is asava. Asava, A-S-A-V-A. And it basically means something that flows out of the mind. And there's a list of three, basically. There's sensuality, becoming, and ignorance. And so these are the things you're trying to get rid of. Your thoughts about sensual pleasures. Um, Becoming the, the, the idea that I want to take on an identity in a particular world, like it could be a world of your imagination. This is where I get started. You, you, it's like when you're falling asleep, this little world will appear in your mind and you're in that world. That's becoming. And we engage in that a lot of that throughout the day, you know, thinking about a situation, what would I do in that situation? That's, that's a problem for the mind, there's, because there's going to be stress there. And then, of course, then ignorance is you're not looking at things in terms of the Four Noble Truths. And it's these three things that you're trying to get out, get away from. Yes? So, if you, when you're a, uh, 
about your body? If you're going to be visualizing the Buddha, that would be how you do it. Um, I would prefer, I, I would recommend instead that you try to visualize your body. Yeah, what's wrong? Why, why not visualize your body? <laughs> okay, well, visualizing the Buddha is not going to make you a Buddha. You know? Yes, but how did he, did he visualize the Buddha? No, he visualized his his own body while he was working with the breath. That's body in and of itself. That's what he's working with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you say, okay, where's my breath right now? Is the breath in my back running, going well? The breath in my legs? Okay, but there will be a metal picture that corresponds that can... Because if you close your eyes and ask, oh, where are the different sensations, you will need a metal picture to identify these things. Because as soon as you close your eyes, your body becomes just this kind of mass of indeterminate stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay, you would concentrate on a particular point when there's an issue in that particular point? Like you say there's a pain in that particular point, you want to understand the pain. Or you feel that the breath energy in that particular point is not going well, why is that? Then you focus on that point. And then you start going around. Well, maybe, maybe the cause is not at the point where the pain is, maybe it's someplace else. And so then you try to trace around the body. But if you're trying to get the mind into solid concentration, full body. Now, there will be one point that will be more prominent than the others, but you're still trying to maintain this full range of your whole body. Because it's, it's, when your mind is just one point, it can very easily slip off to the past or the future. It's like the past and the future are these little tiny pipes that run off in two directions. And if your mind is small enough, it can go down the pipe. But if you're filling the body, it won't go. Yes. I, I find that sometimes, or, or most of the time, when I'm settling down and I get a little more subtle, my eyes will kind of suddenly open. Mm -hmm. and it, there's not a lot of warnings, so I don't know the way to deal with that. Does it disturb your concentration? Can you say, well, I'll, I'll let them open, but I'll just stay with the body? Can you do that? Okay. You can try that. Either just say, okay, settle down, okay, now I can close them again. Because ultimately you want to get so that it's equal. I mean, whether, your mind, whether your eyes are open or closed, you still want to be able to be with the body. attention to a part of the body that doesn't experience pain, 
sort of can help can help with holding into concentration. <laughs> but I'm curious about what you just said about pain of going to the pain. Somehow when I go to the pain, then that seems like a moment where it's easy to kind of um, become more averse to it, I guess. <laughs> Okay, first thing is, your first line of attack is to go to the part of the body where the pain is not. Okay. That's your foundation. And realize, okay, I've got, this is my safe place. When I start when it, going into the sensation of pain and seeing how my mind is talking to itself about the pain, because that's what you're looking for, is what are these perceptions and what is the fabrication you're doing around the pain. But sometimes, as you find, you find, okay, it gets worse. So wait, I'm not ready for this yet, back out. And having the place where you can back out it makes you more confident. Well, maybe I can go in again. You know? I can, that's because I've got my safe place. So you're trying to develop that safe place. And we can talk all afternoon about pain, but um, we'll be getting to this, the, the description of the um, using the breath with, with that second frame of reference with feelings. And basically, the, the best descriptions I've seen for working with pain are John Lee and John Mahabua. And their teachings fit within that particular framework. So when we get to that framework, we can expand on it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yes? So um, in everyday life, this is a practice for everyday life, so the jhana mm-hmm. will help us be more concentrated mm-hmm. and aware mm-hmm. of our body sensations and breath. Mm-hmm. When there's a difficulty in everyday life, mm-hmm. a unpleasant thing happens. Mm-hmm. Well, you want to be able to, you, it, there will be times when you say, look, I've got to focus on the task at hand, I can't focus on the breath, or the whole body awareness. But you, you really want to be able to um, access that as quickly as possible. And this is one of the reasons why it helps sometimes to give yourself a five-minute meditation break. When you tell yourself, okay, I've only got five minutes to meditate, I don't have time. You know, when you're doing an hour, it's kind of like a glider. Say, so I've got a whole hour, I can gradually settle down. And five minutes before the hour is up, okay, you're there. <laughs> if you've got five minutes, you have to say, I've got five minutes, I can't, <laughs> no time to fool around. Yeah. You go back, trying to find one of the ways, I'm, I'm going to tell you about how you do your five minutes first, and that'll get you to, the, to that, which is, start out, okay, where is my point? Where is the point where I feel most, when the mind settles down, where does it tend to go? Okay, go there right away. And from there, okay, full body. Breathe, breath is okay. Stay there. Okay, and so your seven-year-old is yelling at you. Okay, you full body. <laughs> And then watch the kid and see where there's a point in the kid's attack where you can go in. So it's learning how to get there fast. And I mean, ideally, as you're, as you're walking down the street, you don't have anything else to think about. Okay, try to maintain this full, full body awareness. You're sitting in a meeting. Great time to practice concentration. <laughs> Nobody has to know. 
and try to make that your kind of your default mode. That when if I'm not thinking about anything, whoop, whole body. So that when the time comes and you really need it, okay, whole body, it's there. Because your whole body's right here. Yeah, but you know, our whole life we've been up here. Mm-hmm. This is why I think John Lee's method is so good for getting you back down in here. I mean, I, I, when I was in Singapore, it turns out there's, a, there's the Baak people, and they really have decided to take on a John Lee now uh, about what's wrong with the John Lee's instructions. And they say, you know, the Buddha never talked about breath energies in the body. This is a yogic practice. It's Hindu. It has nothing to do in Buddhism. I say, look, if it works, it's dharma. One. Two, the Buddha talks about spreading the sense of ease and relaxation or, or rapture through your body, but it doesn't say how. And John Lee tells you how. Think of breath energies. And use them. So they're there. Where is the best place to access the breath energies? For some people, it's in the middle of the chest. If you find yourself being too much up in the head, avoid spots in the head. But some people actually find it up right here is a good place to access it. Sometimes in the middle of the chest, sometimes the, the tip of the breastbone is a really good place to go. Especially if you need to get out of your head, go, go down there. Okay, next passage. This is breath meditation. And the, the Buddha taught breath meditation in 16 steps, which he divided into four tetrads. And it's not the case that you do one, and then you do two, and three, and four, and then five. It's, it's not a linear progression. The, the four tetrads are things that you will be gathering, you will be doing, working with all the time. Simply the question is, which of the four will you be emphasizing? The first one has to do with the body. second one has to do with feelings. third has to do with your mind state. You sit down and meditate, all three of those are, are at issue. Where's my mind right now? How's the breath right now? Is there a feeling of ease? Right away. You've got three right there. And then the fourth one has to do with, okay, what do I have to let go if I'm going to get the mind to settle down more, more, more fully? And so here the Buddha is talking about the four tetrads in the context of those four frames of reference. So the first one is just notice when you're breathing in long, notice when you're breathing in short. And then John Lee would add, notice when you're breathing in, which, which, which feels better, long or short. You go for it, whatever feels better. Through the remaining steps, you train yourself. The first one is to train bodily fabrication. The word, excuse me, breathe in sensitive to the entire body. Okay, that's you spread your awareness to fill the body. And then you calm bodily fabrication. Okay, bodily fabrication here is the in and out breath. So you breathe in such a way that you calm the breath. And by the time you get to the fourth jhana, it is so calm, you don't feel like you have any in and out breath at all. Now, there's lots of different discussions of how you can do that. Um, there was a great book that came out recently said, this is physically impossible. And then a footnote said, this is a Jain practice. <laughs> okay, which is it? <laughs> is it physically impossible or is it a Jain practice? It's actually... the. But the Buddha talks about this several times. You get to the point where the sensation of the in and out breathing stops. Now, this may have to do with the fact that when the body, the breath energies in the body are all connected, there must be some oxygen exchange at your skin. The pores are open and you're getting enough oxygen. The brain is not using much oxygen, so you don't need that much. So you can sit there for a long period of time and not feel the need to breathe.
Okay, that's the first four. The second four, and this is where we get into the issue of, of feelings. You first breathe in and out, sensitive pleasure, rapture, sensitive to rapture, excuse me, first sensitive to rapture, then sensitive to pleasure. Breathe in and out, sensitive to mental fabrication. Now, mental fabrication is feelings and perceptions. So you, you begin to notice, okay, how do these feelings have an effect on my mind? And how, my perceptions of the breath, what are they doing to the mind? Are they helping create more calmer feelings, or are they getting in the way? This is where you start thinking about your body. The lady over there. The, the, this is, the perception here is your mental image of your body, or your mental image of the breath. And you become sensitive to, when I have a particular perception in mind, what does that do to the quality of my mind? What does that do to the quality of the breath in the body? We're on page one. Passage three, paragraph two. So if you perceive the breath simply as air coming in and out of the nose, it's hard to get rapturous around air coming in and out of the nose. If you perceive it as an energy filling the body, like your body is a big sponge, the air can come in, or the breath can come in and out all the different pores of the skin, that will be a different perception. Another perception you can have is you're not trying to pull the breath in from outside. The breath is actually originating in the body itself. It's radiating from some spot. And you find, okay, which of these perceptions do you find most calming? Because that's the fourth step, is to calm, bodily, calm mental fabrication. Which perceptions, which feelings are most calming for the mind? So you're working with that. Now, we talked earlier about how this is where the, the, the analysis of pain comes in. And John Lee talks a lot about when there's a pain in one part of the body, try to create a sense of ease and well-being in another part, and go there. Okay, once you've got that as your foundation, then you start looking at, what are my perceptions around the pain? Then you try to look at the pain that way, now that you have your foundation. And so this is where you can ask yourself, Ajahn Mahabhu comes in really well here with the different questions you can ask yourself. Is the pain solid? Um, what happens if I just don't label it as pain, label it as sensation? Um, is the pain the same thing as the body? You have to remember that when we first encountered pain, we didn't have much, we didn't have language at all. We were very young and just crying, and that was all. And so our sort of instinctive reaction to pain, we probably developed some strange attitudes toward the pain as a result, which we began to carry with us, never really examined. Now's the time to turn around and examine those perceptions around the pain. Does the pain have an intention to harm you? Does, there, does the mind have that perception someplace? Look at that. Uh, once you can see that the pain is just moments of pain coming and going, then you say, why focus on them coming? Why don't I focus on them going? Years back I was in, in Singapore getting a Chinese treatment on my back, and it consisted of the doctors rubbing some oil into my back. At first it felt nice. And then he started rubbing away. It felt, anyway, he's rubbing awfully hard. And, and then the skin was beginning to get raw. And then he took out these two bamboo whisks and <laughs> went up and down my back. And it didn't seem like it was going to stop anytime soon. <laughs> and my first thought was, okay, what have I done? <laughs> what bad karma do I have? 
And then I began to realize, okay, the pain is coming and going, and I could focus on it going, 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 going. It's like you're sitting in the back of a station wagon going down the road, and as soon as something appears in your line of sight, it's going away. You hold that perception in mind, and it became a lot easier to take. So these are some of the ways you work with pain. Once, give yourself, one, give yourself another foundation. And then two, ask yourself questions. How am I perceiving the pain? Because it's the perceptions that are creating the, the bridge between the physical pain and the mental pain. And if you can cut those, those bridges, then you can be with the pain and not suffer. Sometimes you find the, actual, the pain actually goes away. Because it's your perceptions around the pain that have sort of maintained this kind of crust of, crust of tension in that spot. Mm -hmm. And you realize, realize you're clinging to certain perceptions. So you've got to question them. And what I liked about Ajahn Mahabhu's analysis is that some of the questions he came up with are pretty strange. But they get to, you know, sort of sub subconscious attitudes we have about the pain that haven't been... If you don't ask strange questions, you don't get the strange answers. Well, is, is the pain the same thing as the body? And the mind immediately says, no, it's not. But wait, wait a minute, does part of the mind believe that? Check it out. Or you know, does the pain have an intention? Well, of course not, but... Part of your mind may think it does. Yes? When you speak of our attitudes towards pain, it reminds me of our, you were speaking last night about our attitudes towards anger. Mm -hmm. Well, here the question is, I want my body to be free of the pain. And this pain has invaded my body. It's in my space. Out, 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 damn spot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I find that that's my attitude towards anger a lot. Mm -hmm. Which means, okay, but again, you're holding on to certain perceptions about the body that are useful at some point. Like in the body, this is my space because I, if I didn't think it was my space, I wouldn't be able to move it around. But when you're being attacked by pain, you say, I've got to abandon that perception. It has uses for other places, but not right now. With anger, though, it's, it's more that okay, you're getting a charge out of the anger. And you've got to ask yourself, you know, why? So they're actually quite different. They're, they're, they're different, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes? A lot of it has to do with that. So, okay, can, can I allow the pain to be there? So, well, who am I to, to say no? You know, let it be there. Because there's part of the, there's one of our defense mechanisms we picked up very early as if you, you're thinking, I can put it back, it's on a wall of tension around the pain, it won't, it won't come, it won't spread. And so you think, well, I've got to keep pushing it away, so otherwise it's going to invade my whole body and then I'll have it. And he said, well, wait a minute, no, wait a minute. I don't need to push against it. Just let it be where it's going to be. And if it seems to be sticking out little pseudopods every now and then, don't worry about it. 
Yes. Okay, well, you're, cha- you're, one, you're relaxing around it, and two, you're changing your perception. Because one of the things we do is we, we, part of the mind keeps sending a message. As I said, we're sending messages to the mind to remind itself about something. And part of the mind will say, okay, remember, there's this pain here, watch out for it. Pass the word on, pass the word on, there's a pain here. And we're carrying a lot of pain from the past as we do that. And then you start investigating the actual sensation, you're cutting through those messages. John Lee has a great image. He says we're often like a farmer who's plowing a field. You know, for him, you plow the field with a water buffalo, and so you tie this big bag to the water buffalo's leg, and as the dirt falls off the plow, you put it in the bag. After a while, the buffalo won't be able to go anywhere. And we're thinking about the pain. Oh gosh, this pain has been here this long, and it has this shape, and I've been passing it on, passing it on, passing it on, with this length of time. And so you can say, I don't have to pass this on. I'll just be with the sensation in the present. I'll allow it to pass away. If it comes back, okay, I'll allow that to pass away. That's sending the mind a different message. And your relationship to the pain, the actual physical, what it actually feels like, is going to change. I've noticed I get attached to that relaxing Well, sometimes it will evaporate, sometimes it won't, but the fact that you're not tensing up around it is a good... Is it a good attachment? Or... Oh, yeah. <laughs> you could say, gee, I ought to make myself feel more pain. Hmm. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, the next, next tetrad has to do with the mind. And here the Buddha talks about, instead of using this, that list that he has in the Satipatthana Sutta, he has a different list of things. One is you get sensitive to the mind, what state is it in. Next one, okay, then the next three have to do with, once you've found what's going on with the mind, there are three things you might have to do with it. One is you gladden it. In other words, if the mind is low, has low energy, if it is depressed about something, if it is you know, lacking in confidence, you think in ways that give it more confidence. Give more energy. Breathe in ways that give more energy. Breathe in ways that are more refreshing. Sort of give energy to the mind. The other one is if it's got too much energy, how do you steady it? What do you do to get it sort of solidly grounded? And the third one is to release it. Now, when releasing it's, it can be, okay, if there are sensual thoughts in the mind, how do you release the mind from the sensual thoughts? If thoughts of anger in the mind, how do you release the mind from thoughts of anger? If you're in one level of jhana, how do you release the grosser factors of that jhana so you can get to a higher level of jhana? These are some of the activities you might be doing as you are getting the mind into concentration. And then the fourth one, 
on dhammas or mental qualities. This is basically how you how you release the mind from something. First, you focus on inconstancy, and here inconstancy stands for all the drawbacks you can see about a particular mind state. And it's, it's, it's kind of a code word for the various perceptions you can apply to that mind state to see that it does have its drawbacks. So you could, you could focus on the stressfulness, you could focus on the fact that it's not self. Because in the Buddha's analysis, the way you let go of something is you, you see it arise, and when you see it arise, it's not just arising, you also see what's causing it to arise. You know, what is it that sparks it to begin with? You, know, you find yourself that you have a sudden desire for alcohol. Well, what sparked the desire for alcohol? Was it a, a sensation in the body? Was it a perception of yourself as being oppressed? Or that your, your nerves are frazzled and this was the best thing you could do? Okay, why, would, why, does that why does that little sensation spark this reaction? Can you have, think of another reaction? Because sometimes just the tiniest little things set us off. And you find yourself, you're doing something, you're, you'd say, why am I doing this? And you have to trace it back. Well, what was it that first started me thinking in these ways? This is particularly good if you have an addiction to something. Okay, what are the little sensations in the body that will trigger the addiction? So you're looking for the trigger. That's the first step. Secondly, to see when it comes, how does it go away? Like, anger is not there 24 hours. Even if it seems like it's there for 24 hours, it comes and it goes, it comes and it goes. It goes, and then you bring it back up again. It goes and bring it back up again. And you want to see, why is it that, when it went, why did it go? That way you learn to see, okay, this is not as constant and as threatening as I thought it was. Because all too often, especially with an addiction, the, the desire says, okay, if you don't give in to me now, I'm going to make it worse until you can't stand it. So let's make it easier for both of us to give in right now. <laughs> and you give in. But if you begin to see, oh, this comes and it goes and it comes and goes, and the reason it seems stronger when it comes back is I've changed the way I breathe around it, so that the way I breathe around it is more and more irritated. So you learn how to breathe through that, and you realize it doesn't have, it's not gathering up power. You've been giving it power. That's one good thing. There's a story they tell. I don't know if I told this story about Jakuna Bali and the woman whose son died. Have I told that story here? He was a friend of a John Mun who became a Bangkok monk, and he was well known for having a sharp tongue. And so, as I said, you know, the people, you know, high-ranking people sitting around the house, nobody can yell at them. They go to see Joe Kunabali so, so he can yell at them. <laughs> or he didn't necessarily yell; he just said, said sharp things. And so one day, this one woman showed up. She was really upset because her her, her son had died. Her only son. He was fairly young. And she said, I just can't think of anything except my grief over my son. And he looked at her and he said, you're just saying that to impress the other people around you. <laughs> Ooh. So she, she didn't even say goodbye, she just left, you know. Went home. All she could think about how horrible a Jankunabali was. <laughs> and then after an hour of that, she began to realize she hadn't thought about her son <laughs> at all during that hour. <laughs> So these emotions that seem to be so solid, and they're not quite so solid. You know? <laughs> so you see it come, you see it go. When it c comes, what is the allure? Why do you go for it? We talked about this a little last night. And sometimes the allure will be something that you don't like to admit to yourself. 
You have your stupid reasons for lust, you have your stupid reasons for anger, and you don't admit them to yourself. But you, you really look at them and say, okay, it's, I go for this because I get a charge out of it, I think I'm gaining something from this, magical thinking, whatever. And then you compare that with the drawbacks. Okay, if I actually follow through with this, what are the drawbacks? How am I harming myself? How am I harming the people around me? And this too is something we tend to hide from ourselves. You say, oh, it doesn't matter. Yes. What would you say are some of the stupid reasons for getting caught in loops of anxiety? Mm -hmm. Well, basically part of the mind says, if I worry about this enough, it will go away. <laughs> That's a big one. <laughs> or if I worry about this enough, I will be prepared, you know. Mm -hmm. And all too often, what actually happens is something quite different from what you expected, in which case all that worrying accomplished nothing and actually wore you down. And the best way to talk to that part of the mind is say, look, I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know what, if something bad happens, I'm going to need a lot of mindfulness, I'm going to need a lot of alertness. Let's work on that. That's my preparation. Okay, then the fifth step, once you've gone through this comparison between allure and drawbacks, is dispassion, which is the next step here. After you've, after you've seen the drawbacks, you say, oh, I'm, I'm, this is not just something that's coming at me. I'm actually actively creating this, and it's actually harming me. You develop dispassion for it. In other words, you've been, you've been fixing yourself lousy food, and you're complaining about the food. <laughs> and you finally say, I can stop doing this. I don't have to do this. And that's when, that's when the next step is from dispassion to cessation. Okay, these, the, you stop creating these things, you stop fabricating these things, and then you let go not only of the things you've been fabricating, but also this process you had to do in order to stop the fabrication. In other words, you've dealt with the issue, you can put down your tools. This again is another image you see throughout the forest tradition. It's as if you're building something, you know, making a desk, making a chair. You hold on to your tools while you're working at it. And then when you're done with the chair, you're also done with the tools. This is why they make such a big thing about having to let go of the discernment as well, once you've solved that problem. Greg, you had a question? Well, when you talk about um, a little sensation leading to like a, maybe a large mind state, mm -hmm. um, when, uh, when I'm looking at that little sensation, is, is that Sometimes it will. Sometimes it will. In which case, you have to look back. Well, what 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 sparked the desire to plant the little sensation? You got to chase these things back. Okay, so just seeing the little sensation is not far enough. Not necessarily. Sometimes the little sensation comes on its own, and you say, "Oh, this is my excuse to whatever." But it's, a bit, it's very repetitive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, just keep telling yourself, okay, from this point on, when that sensation comes, I'm going to breathe right through it and see what part of the mind objects. No, no, that was, that was my in, you know. Then you know, okay, there's something else going on. But if you find that, okay, the sensation is there, and it's okay, instead of thinking, you know, I need to think some thoughts of lust so I feel okay, say, no, I can think, I can breathe through it, through that sensation, I'll be okay. And sometimes it'll work. You lose, you know, you say, oh, this is much better than 
than the thoughts or the, the activities I was doing before. Mm-hmm. So any, any more questions on that passage three? Yes. Following up on Greg's question, is there always a, um, uh, a physical counterpart sensation to an unskillful thought or intention? Most likely there usually is, but sometimes you'll find that's purely mental. You think about your boss and say, mm. <laughs> The thought comes first again, then the Okay, passage four is when we start getting into discussions of breath of, of the jhanas. And uh, that first sentence there is after the Buddha explains the first tetrad of breath meditation and as, as an example of mindfulness immersed in the body. Here again, we're seeing how concentration practice and mindfulness practice are basically the same thing. Secondly, when the Buddha is using the word body here, he is talking about the physical body. You know, the people who talk about you know, concentration as being just one spot will say, well, when the Buddha is talking about the body, he's talking about the, the mental body. In other words, just the, the range of your awareness. He's not talking about your re- real physical body. But here it's obvious from the, the context. The, the word body means the same thing all the way through. You start with the physical body and you keep going with the physical body as you get the mind into the states of jhana. Okay, quite secluded from sensuality, secluded from unskillful dharmas. Sensuality here, as I said earlier, is your fascination with thinking about thoughts about sensual pleasures, your fantasies, the way you dress things up to yourself. But this pleasure is going to be really great. I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to enjoy that. Well, maybe let's go back and change this so it goes this way. And you can you can think about these things. Suppose you're going to have pizza after the end of the end of the session today. Okay, you think, well, what's, what's the best restaurant down there in Hawthorne? What kind of pizzas do they have? Oh, they have lots of different toppings. Which toppings should I put on? And you can go through the different combinations of toppings. You spend the whole afternoon totally missing the discussion of jhana. <laughs> and the mind gets its entertainment that way. You actually go down and eat the pizza in what, 15 minutes? And the thing is, if you were... You know, you, you th- say, I, want, I don't know the names of any of the pizza joints down there, but suppose you had your mind set on one pizza joint, you go down there, it turns out they're closed for the day. No problem, there's another pizza joint. Now you start fantasizing about that pizza, you know. But if someone were to come and say, you are not allowed to think about pizza at all, you know, <laughs> you'd rebel. Isn't that what the precepts do? No, the precepts let you think about pizza as much as you want. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you say, okay, I can take the precepts as long as I get to think about what I want to think about. <laughs> they just don't let you steal the pizza. They don't let you steal the pizza, yes. They don't let you kill for the pizza. <laughs> Let you say to the pizza person, I'll, I'll have sex with you if you give me the pizza. It 
Very similar. <laughs> I'm talking about pizza because monks are not supposed to talk about sex that much, okay? <laughs> so, you're secluding the mind from that kind of thinking, okay? In other words, sometimes this is translated secluded from sensual pleasures, and it makes it sound you've got to go into a, to go into a prison cell in order to do jhana. No. You can be surrounded by a nice setting, but it's your mind that you've got to watch out for. The mind is fascinated with thinking thoughts about sensual pleasures. You say, for the time, I'm going to drop that. Not go there. Secluded from unskillful dramas. Unskillful dramas would be anything from wrong view up through wrong mindfulness. And you enter in the, in the remainder of the first jhana. There's rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. In other words, the fact that the mind is let these things go. The word rapture here can also be translated as refreshment. The Pali word is bitti. And, it is, it, and as we get into the um, similes for the jhana, it's, it's symbolized by movement. There's kind of a sense of flowing. There's a flowing quality. There's energy in the body. It feels like everything's flowing really well in the body. It can actually get very strong. It can be the, the weakest manifestations tend to be just a sense of fullness. It's as if every little cell in your body felt nice and full. There's no sense of lack. And, there, and, there's, and it does get to a point, though, where it gets to be too much. Even that sense of fullness can get to be too much. Like there's an energy that fills things. And then sometimes people have you know, their hair standing on end, thrills running up and down the spine. That would also count as rapture. Pleasure is simply a sense of ease. Accompanied by direct a thought and evaluation. Now, direct a thought and evaluation are the Buddhist definitions of definition of verbal fabrication. In other words, you're talking to yourself about what's going on. A direct a thought is when you like you choose the topic, and then evaluation is your comment on the topic. You know, there's some languages where the, that basic sentence structure is that. In English, we have you know subject, verb, object. The bur the basic sentence structure in Thai is a topic and then comment on the topic. So direct a thought to the topic and then evaluation. And so this is your inner conversation to yourself. Now, if we're working with the breath, of course, this means you direct your thoughts to the breath and keep them on the breath. And then ask yourself, okay, how is the breath going? Is the breath flowing well? Is it not? If it's not flowing well, what are you going to do? How do you change the breath? If it is flowing well, how do you maintain it? Then we'll be talking a little bit about how do you spread it through the body, how you get the most out of that sense of good breath energy. You can also be evaluating your state of mind. How is the mind staying with it? Does the mind need to be calmed down a little bit? Does it need to be energized? This is the conversation you have as you're basically getting things adjusted inside. So you've got to write a thought and evaluation. Okay, then you take, you pervade and pervade. Permeate and pervade, suffuse and fill this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. And here's the analogy. I want to make some comments on these analogies um, as, a, as a set before we go into the individual ones. In all of these, water stands for pleasure, movement stands for rapture. You'll notice in the first analogy, it's the only one where you have a conscious, a conscious agent doing something. That's, the, that's what's representing the director thought and evaluation. In this case, you've got the bathman or bathman's apprentice would pour bath powder into brass basin and knead it together, sprinkling it again and again with water. 
In those days, they didn't have bars of soap. They would have a kind of a powder that would make into a dough, which you would then kind of rub over your body when you took a bath. And so just as you're making bread, you sprinkle the flour with the water until, you, until the, the entire ball of flour is, forms a ball, basically. And it's, moisture, it's moisturized, but it's, there's nothing dripping outside, and there's still no dry, dry flour left over. So the bathman has to adjust things to make sure the water gets every, evenly moved out throughout the, the ball of powder. So that's the activity of directed thought and evaluation. So he, he gets it saturated, moisture-laden, permeated within and without, but nevertheless not drip. In other words, there's no excess water. It's all nicely mixed because you're using your... Basically, directed thought and evaluation are the beginnings of discernment here. How are things going? What can I do to improve them? Yeah. You, permeate and f you permeate this very body with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. There's nothing of this entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. You remain thus heedful, ardent, and resolute. Any memories or resolves related to the household life are abandoned. In other words, you don't think about how your home issues at all. And with abandoning, your mind gathers and settles inwardly, growing unified and concentrated. This is how you develop mindfulness immersed in the body. Any questions about that first jhana? Yes? Uh, with directed thought and evaluation being verbal, mm -hmm. uh, It's, you have to remember, verbal fabrication is something you're doing all the time. Even before you're doing jhana, you're doing verbal fabrication, right? You say, okay, now I'm going to turn my mind to the breath. And now I'm going to talk to myself about the breath. And the very beginning is, okay, it's coming in? Yes, it's coming in. Is it going out? Yes, it's going out. How does it feel? Feels good. Okay, make, keep it up. Oops, you're about to slip off. Come back. There's conversation going on inside. It's not like you suddenly start doing verbal directed thought and evaluation as you start doing jhana. You take what you're already doing and you change the topic of the conversation. And then you learn, okay, what kind of conversation is helpful, what kind of conversation is not. You're a lousy meditator. That's not a helpful conversation. You encourage yourself. You're doing fine, doing fine, doing fine. Oh, look, let's adjust the breath. Maybe the breath could be better. Let's try that out. And there's this conversation that goes on. It will get that way in the next stage, okay. but you have to you have to do this in order to get everything together. Yes. Okay, the movement equals rapture, water equals pleasure. In this image, this is the only image of the set where you've got a conscious agent doing something. The activity of the bathman is, corresponds to directed thought and evaluation. Okay, so you said movement equals rapture. rapture. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Mind, we can very focus on that, but in the case of just 
the movement of body during rapture suddenly arises and prevails, and then the mind becomes still, that would be like moving through. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Question here? This one. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, this is a little rambling. Um, so I went on a retreat last year with um, Tina Rasmussen and Stephen Snyder, and I did the PAW thing. And I'm going to go on a retreat with um, the Bracington who uh, looks at the suttas more. Um, and it seems like a lot of it comes down to, based on my reading, um, I think I have the polymorphs right, but I might not have the Pitaka and Vichara uh, being translated as either uh, sustained, or initial and sustained um, attention, or as you were talking about them as um, thinking and evaluating. Um, I know in, in the uh, last retreat I did, it was said that there is no thinking of the first jhana. Um, we talk and we try to mean to think. Yeah. That, that's the so, ordinary everyday meaning of those words. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, so, and also it seems clear based on uh, the simile that there's still this sense of infusing the body right. and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and I guess the, the reason why I kind of bounce all over the place with learning all these things is because um, you know, I, I had some success with the other method in getting very concentrated, but mm-hmm. you know, I haven't been able to replicate that outside of the retreat setting. Mm-hmm. So I guess what I'm just getting to is, is um, you know, how, how are we to wade through all these various interpretations of what constitutes a jhana? Does it actually really matter all of that much? And, and do you think that um, particularly first jhana is something that should be accessible um, for lay people outside of a retreat? So yeah, it should be accessible. I mean, the Buddha never taught in a retreat situation. <laughs> One. You, there is a distinction between the way jhana is described in the commentaries and the way jhana is described in the canon. I mean, they're quite different. Jhana in the commentaries, you, you know, you get really one, you know, this one point, and then you try to fill fill your mind with that, whatever the whatever the object is that you're focusing on. And in that, okay, it is applied thought, and then you sustain the thought of that one object to begin with. And that's where that translation of these terms came from. In other words, the, the translation was not adapted from the canon, it was adapted from the commentaries. So they're talking about two different things. The real issue in jhana is, what do you do with your concentration? Now with that kind of, that kind of jhana, you cannot do any analysis while you're in it. Whereas the Buddha is always talking about how when the mind gets in jhana, when the whole, one of the purposes of it is you can actually analyze it. And it's kind of like when you're fully in some of these states, there will be no thinking, but you can pull it out a little bit and observe what's going on. How is the state different from the one before? It's kind of your hand is in a glove and you pull it out a little bit. It's still in the glove but not fully inside the glove. Um, I'm a big advocate of this. <laughs> do, you, do you think that there is any value to those um, deeper conflicts? They can get you really concentrated and one-pointed, but okay. Then, then the question is, when you come back out, what are you going to use that one-pointedness for? Yeah. Yeah, and I and I do think um, you know in terms of what coming back out of it.
But you're still focusing on the breath? Mm-hmm. You're going to be in the breath all the way through, all four. <laughs> What's panic? Okay, the panic is just stay right here. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Stay right here. And because part of it is, you know, you're dropping certain of your thoughts about the world, and a lot of your identity has to do with you and the world. And you're feeling like, whoops, I'm dropping some parts of me. But remember, I'm still. I can still think. I'm not, you know, driven into this thoughtless state. And so if things don't feel right, I can pull out any time I want. So there's nothing to be afraid afraid of. It's just that part of you that you've been carrying around is saying, where, where, where's the room for me in here? <laughs> and you say, maybe I'd be better off without that part for the time being. I can pick it up when I come back out. It's not going to get lost. So you have to basically talk yourself into saying, oh, this is going to be okay. But you stay with the breath all the way through. You don't leave it. Of course, and as we're talking about breath, of course, it means not just the sensation of the air coming in and out, but this whole sense of breath energy in the body. You can stay there. Yes? Could you, could you tell me how this compares or if it's compatible to the Pasana concentration on changing objects? This gets a lot deeper. And if you're going to beginning, because it makes you more and more sensitive to two things. One, more and more sensitive to subtle levels of stress. And also makes you much more sensitive to what the mind is doing. Now, I've read some descriptions of, you know, Vipassana attainments, and they say, wait a minute, that's, that's a jhana that they're talking about. It's just that it seemed, you know, because they were doing a kind of a, what they called a Vipassana practice leading up to it, this must be a, a stage of, a, of insight. Where it's actually, okay, it's something that you fabricated. And if you're doing this with a conscious thing, conscious thing, kind of putting this together, then you understand the processes of fabrication in the mind a lot better. You're more sensitive to it, so that when something comes up, you can ask yourself, okay, is this fabricated or not? Well, let's sit with it for a while, and then you can detect it more easily. That puts you in a position where you actually do hit something that's unfabricated, you'll know. Because you know that you've been, you're sensitive to your own fabrications. Much more. Because you're doing the mental... Because you're consciously putting the mind in these states. And also, as I said, you're, you're getting more and more sensitive to subtle levels of stress. Because that's one of the things that gets you from one state of concentration to the next. You say, well, this is less stressful than that. It felt really, really easeful and blissful when I first entered here. But now that I've moved in, I begin to say, oh, this, there's something wrong here. It's like you know, you've lived in this tiny little shack. And all of a sudden, you've got this much nicer house. And when you first move into the house, oh, this is a big house. This is gorgeous. You know, when, and then you begin to notice, well, the pipes still leak a little bit. You know? Or I mean, maybe the view is not as good as I thought it could be. It's like that Monty Python sketch about the, the Robin Hood character who you know, steals from the rich and gives to the poor. And he starts giving to the poor. You know, the poor get, oh, I'd like a little of this. You know, I'd like a little of that. <laughs> <laughs> And he ends up, he steals from the poor and gives to the rich. <laughs> so your mind gets, it, it gets more demanding. 
what was good enough for a while. Okay, this is not good enough anymore. I want something better. Okay, let's make it better. To give you a more positive image, there was this group in Washington, D.C. years back. They would go around and they'd go to all the embassies and they'd take all the leftover food from these embassy banquets, which was otherwise just going to get thrown away, and they would take it down to the homeless people. They set up a little storefront and they got the people, used, homeless people used to living off of embassy food. <laughs> and then next door to that, they opened up a, ki a, a cooking school. You want to learn how to make that kind of food? Here, here's how we do it. And they got a lot of people off the streets and into kitchens that way. So as you, as you do this kind of practice, you get more and more used to embassy food. And then you learn how to fix it yourself. Any other questions on the first jhana? We'll be lucky if we get through page four by the end of the afternoon. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. You can read a lot of this on your own once you get it once you get it down, the basic concepts. Okay, the second jhana. Okay, you've you've worked through the breath energy, got it through the body. Everything feels really good. Now you can stop talking to yourself. You're just there with the breath. Now, you will still have a little perception that keeps you there. Remember this, you're letting go of verbal fabrication, which is full sentences. But you still have that mental label that says breath, breath, breath. Then it enables you to stay with the breath. So here you have rapture and pleasure born of concentration. Instead of just the seclusion, now the mind really is focused. Unification of awareness. In other words, the mind and its object become one. You feel like the, your awareness and the, and the breath are just one together. Free from directed thought and evaluation, internal assurance. There's a sense of, okay, I really am here, firmly planted. With the directed thought and evaluation, you're still kind of running around it, trying to fix it up. Now it's fixed. You can get inside. And you notice with the image here, just like a lake with spring water welling up from within, having no inflow from the east, west, north, or south, with the skies supplying abundant showers time and again, so that the cool fount of water welling up from within the lake would permeate and pervade the views and fill it with cool waters, there being no part of the lake unpervaded by the cool waters. Okay, this image here, notice that the, with the image of the bathman, the bathman was here, the water was there in the ball of bath powder. Now you're in the lake surrounded. There's a sense of the energy, the rapture kind of surrounding you, the breath energy surrounding you. You're here planted and you're really still in the midst of all this. And sometimes it really is a literal feeling of something flowing up in the body, but not necessarily. But you're surrounded by the breath energy. You're not having to adjust. You're not having to think. You're just there with it. And John Fuang's image is of when you're filling up a, a jar of water. And there comes a point where you, the jar of water is full. No matter how much more water you add to it, it's, it's not going to get any more full than that. So the breath energy fills the body and that you don't have to adjust things anymore. You don't have to see, well, what can I do more to fill more energy in? You don't have to do that anymore. So you can stop the thinking. And you're just there. And in the beginning, it's, it feels a little bit, this is another place where people get disoriented. Because you're used to talking to yourself about this and adjusting this. Now you're just there. And you're trying to maintain your sense of balance being just there. Which is why the Buddha sometimes says, there's, you, have, you can end your direct thought, but there's a little bit of evaluation in other words, this kind of intermediate step, 
where you're still evaluating, you know, how do I maintain my balance in this new state? And then you're there. And that's got you into the second jhana. Questions on that? Yes? Foolish and experienced cow. Yeah, yeah. The foolish and experienced cow. That's right. I love that. <laughs> and I was curious on is that like how do you know that you're ready to start moving on to the next level of concentration? Is it and is that like over time, over days and days, like you know, and getting easily stay there for a while over time, or is it? In this session, this is stabilized, and now I can Okay. Once it's stabilized, the Buddha, actually, there are other passages where the Buddha says, don't be in too great of a hurry to move on. Settle in and enjoy your state first. This is really good. I'm going to hang out here for a while. And you begin to realize as you hang out there, there are little bit, little bit, little times when the direct thought and evaluation stop. And then they start up again. And then they stop. It starts up again. And when you say, hey, when it stops, it's really nice. Can I just let it stop? And if you feel that, oh, wait a minute, I don't feel quite comfortable here, go back and talk to yourself about it a bit. So there'll be, there'll be kind of a little bit of back and forth first until you feel, okay, I'm confident enough to go here and stay. So it is, it is like per session? It can be per session. Sometimes, you know, if you're, if you're, in a quiet place where you can do a fair amount of sustained meditation, you say, okay, let's just try to stay. Every time I sit down, I want, to, I want to get there, I want to get there. And when you're there, then as I said, you begin to notice that, okay, there will be times when the thinking stops for a bit, it picks up again, stops a bit, picks up again. Okay, when it stops, can I just not pick it up again? It's kind of like there'll be little forewarnings of the next, next state. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when moving between first and second phenomena, this method that you're teaching is uh, the object always the fully embodied sense of the breath? Right. Because mm -hmm. when you get to the Buddha's analysis of the fourth, or his image for the fourth jhana, it's just your awareness fills the body. Everything else is calmed down, but the awareness is still there filling the body all at once. So um, to move from first to second jhana, is it, is it just a... It just happens, or is there an intending? Or it can happen either way. Sometimes things feel so really good, you say you don't even think about improving the breath anymore. You're just right there, and the thinking just goes. Other times you realize, okay, as I was saying now, sometimes it goes and comes and comes and goes, and you say, wait a minute, when it, when the thinking comes back, I don't feel quite so good. Let's drop it, not let it come back. Yes. It seems like when I get kind of that no thoughts and it seems like I was thinking my breath and it kind of brings me back into thinking. All you have to do is just say breath, 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 breath. Don't have no many comments on it. Because when, when the type of thinking we're talking about with directed thought and evaluation, it's almost like full sentences. Whereas with perception, which is just the one word. Breath, 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 breath. So there will be that amount of thinking, but that's all you need.
Yes. Okay, the word nimitta in Pali means, in the canon, means one thing, and then the commentary means something else. In the canon, it means whatever your object is. Now, in the commentary, it means, you know, you have a visual image, or it can be a sound, or it can be a, a smell, sometimes comes as you settle down. And here again, this is where commentarial jhana differs from canonical jhana. In commentarial jhana, you go for the nimitta. A bright light comes up, boom, you go for the bright light, you drop the breath. Which is why in the Vasudhimagga, they don't really discuss the 16 steps of breath meditation. They just, you know, your breath comes down, the mind comes down, you get the nimitta, drop the breath, go for the, go for the sign. And this, in the forest tradition, it's always watch out for that sign. You don't play with the sign until you've got it totally under your control. And you play with the sign for a while, but then that's just, the purpose of that is to get you into deeper concentration so you can come back to the breath with this more solid concentration. For, for instance, a light comes. John Fuang would have his students first say, okay, can you make the light go away? Because you want to be in control of the light. You don't want to just sort of pull you out of the body. Okay, when you're in control, you can make it come, go, make it go far away, bring it up close. Get it under your control. Then you bring the light into the body. And sometimes you'll start seeing different parts of your body in that light. And sometimes you don't see anything at all, but there's this great sense, okay, the breath feels really good, okay, now I can get back in the body. And it feels really good. That's the extent to which you would have people play with the nimitta. Okay, we're supposed to stop. Let's come back in 20 minutes. I said, we're not going to get all the way to the readings, that's for sure. <laughs>